So we're, we're patrolling along and we start to get the chatter over the icon, you know, listening into the Taliban using their, you know, their, their, their radios. Um, and the Afghan commander is saying, hey, look, we're, you know, I can, I can, they're talking about ambushing us, they're talking about us moving forward, they can see us. I'm going forward to speak to, I sort of have a, have a quick stop, speak to all of the guys in the, in the team, tell them what's going on, move forward to speak to the Afghan, Afghan commander. Um, and it's at that point the, um, the IED chain detonates. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. This is a special episode because for the first time, my guest is not an American. Will Meddings is an officer in the British Army, and in 2008, he was part of a team deployed in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, tasked with partnering with, mentoring, and training Afghan forces. Now, that job brings with it a host of unique challenges, and many of those challenges really come to the fore when things go badly, like they did for Will and his team on one particular day in July. In the conversation you're about to hear, Will tells a story of what happened that day and reflects on some of the really important leadership lessons the story holds. Before we hear from him, really quickly, just a couple notes. First, thank you so much for listening to The Spear. If you're enjoying it, we would really love it if you could take just a few seconds and give it a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help new listeners to find us. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Will Meddings. So, Will, thanks very much for um, sitting down and making some time. I'm excited. This is our first, uh, our first guest from, from beyond the United States. Uh, you're going to tell a story um, from Afghanistan, as I understand, right? That, that's correct, yeah. Can you kind of um, give the background? When is it? Um, you know, was this your first deployment, second deployment? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the... the the incident in question dates back to 2008, but I think it's, it's worth sort of placing in my own personal context. I, um, I'm an infantry officer. I had um, I deployed to Iraq in uh, 2005, where I worked on the, uh, in the brigade operations company doing sort of um, arrest and raid operations. But, um, but after that, I went to the infantry training center and I was a structure up there for, for about a year or so. Um, and in a way that I think a lot of young officers would, would um, sympathize with or understand, you know, that whilst I was up there, our unit went off to Afghanistan and it was in the early days of the British deployments out there. And, um, and so whilst I was away instructing recruits, and it was a job that I, that I absolutely loved, um, you know, my, my unit had been away and they, they'd been on what I think is still kind of the seminal tour of the unit. Um, and I came back and um, suddenly the, you know, the Iraq operational experience didn't hold the same kudos for all these people who'd been in you know, some pretty brutal firefights. I mean, I think the, you know, the statistics in terms of um, uh, what they went through, um, w- which I don't remember, but really sort of would, would, would speak to how tough the tour was. They had been in Helmand, probably? They'd been in Helmand, yeah. And they, they'd been in Helmand in some of the... It was 2007 they went, and it was very much when it was toe-to-toe fighting rather than counterinsurgency. Um, and, um, and so I sort of, I, you know, I came back and I was very keen. I was really conscious that I'd missed out on that, and I was very keen to go away to Afghanistan. And, um, and a friend of mine who was the adjutant said, look, you know, I came back in April and he said, we can get you out on the tour um, pretty rapidly if you want to go. And, you know, the, the commanding officer supports that. I said, you know, fantastic, sort of, sort of sign me up. I'm, you know, I'm keen to go. And, um, and so 
the it all happened very quickly. I mean, I, you know, I'd obviously been training in infantry recruits, so I was all sort of in date for all my um, all my mandatory training. I was probably, I think, even looking back, I was probably the fittest that I have been in my career. Um, and so I, I found a job with uh, with another unit working in the um, operational uh, mentoring and liaison team, the, the OMLT, um, you know, commonly known as the Omelet, and. Um, and that was, you know, that was sort of early April. I finished at the Infantry Training Centre, and you know, looking back at my diary, by the fifth of June, um, I was uh, I was in theatre. I was in in Camp Shorabak, the, the Afghan Army camp. So a pretty quick turnaround, and I think. Um, Which was where? Where was Camp Shorabak? So that so that's um, that is down in Helmand. I mean, it's it's next to Bastion, so it's sort of it's the main UK and mm-hmm. and, and Afghan base um, together there, and. Um, you know, it's interesting in that the, the unit that I went to join had already been in theatre for a month. They had trained for six months building up to it. But because of the requirement that mentoring has on officers and senior NCOs as opposed to, as opposed to junior soldiers, they were, they were always short of officers. So I, in some ways, was sort of uh, metaphorically par- parachuted in, which made for, made for an interesting experience. And actually, they were, you know, they were a thoroughly professional bunch and we worked very well together. But um, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, can I, can I ask, um, so there are two things. Uh, one, so you were with, uh, re- when you went off to do a year as an instructor, uh, did you return afterwards to the same unit you had been in before? Yeah, and I think um, that's, you know, that is quite often the norm in the British Army. So, yeah. I, so I went away, so I spent my first two and a half years as a platoon commander um, in, in one infantry unit. Um, and that is the same infantry unit that I've spent almost my entire career in the army, which is, which is the norm in, in the British Army. Yeah, which I think is important because, you know, as an American during that time when we had, you know, high operational tempo, uh, if you missed a, a deployment with your unit, you know, your next unit's going to go too. So it's, it isn't quite as meaningful. Yeah. But if you come back and it's sort of the same people around and, and you miss that, I think that that's, um, I can see why that's a pretty powerful motivator. Yeah. Um, and then my second question is about uh, the OMLTs. Are these... Um, are these are these made up of people from different units around the British Army that are brought together for, solely for this purpose? Yeah. So the um, the OMLTs, uh, you know, and the concept has, has developed over over time, and, and it would have been different towards the later tours, but this was relatively early on. Um, you know, one one infantry battalion would be the battle group that delivered the OMLT task, and it would therefore recruit almost all of its officers and soldiers into the OMLT. Um, but there were too many, there's too big a requirement. So they would often find that they would divide themselves up, but there would be elements of the organisation that were brought in from elsewhere. Um, and in a later part of the tour that I went, I went to talk about, I, I was moved to command another group. And um, the team that I had in, in that later part of the tour included um, a signals warrant officer, an infantry corporal who was waiting to promote to sergeant, um, an engineer, a, um, an armour driver, you know, he was a tank driver, um, and we were fulfilling the same sort of infantry role because you know the, the people who were available were, were put into mentoring. Sure, um, sure. So, so you get into country early June, um, and then I guess we're going to talk about uh, a situation that developed in July. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the the early part June, um, we were in in Camp Shorabak, just building our relationship with the Afghan army. Um, but um, but in in July we moved uh, we moved up to Musakala, and Musakala. Actually, was um, a lot of the soldiers I had in my team had a relationship with Musakala already because um, in 2004, I think it was the the regiment that I was with had been out in Musakala as well. So some of these guys had, had trod the same ground before um, under very different very different circumstances. Um, and Musakala was, um, you know, in many ways it was it was quite a sort of bustling, um, built up 
area. You know, there was a <coughs> there was a market that was functioning, but we were out we were out sort of to the northeast, um, and that was the Afghan company was about 150 soldiers. Um, we were fully embedded in them. You know, we, we lived in the same camp. And when I say camp, it was you know, the outside was a combination of, of Hesco and and Concertina Wire. So you know, it wasn't even sort of built up walls around the entire area, but it was it was a patrol base. And how big was your team? Uh, my team at that point, there was uh, 13 of us. I mean, it sort of flexed. And, and on the day of the incident in question, I, you know, I think it was probably about 13 or 14 people. Okay, so uh, you majority had a infantry, and then we had a, a mortifier controller with us as well. And so it was your team and this Afghan company of 150, and that was just you on that compound? Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think we were probably about a, probably about a two or three-hour drive away, um, perhaps a little bit less than that, in order to get to the district centre where the, where the battalion um, and the Omni headquarters were. Okay, um, so what what was the what was the operating environment like? Um, were you, I mean, what was threat activity like? Were you you know getting into engagements regularly? So it I mean it all really depended on, on um, the experience of working with um, the Afghan army, and I, and I expect probably with with most indigenous armies, is you, you know you're forced to operate by their tempo to their rules. And, and in fact, that, that's the whole point. You know, if you, if you weren't to do that, you'd be, you'd be failing in your mission, nor indeed would, would they let you do that. So um, you know, on the days when you were doing um, security patrols into the center of, of Musakala, things were very quiet. You know, you'd be sort of walking along the streets, urban in the center, but in the outskirts, very rural. Um, and it would be unlikely that you would come across any activity. In fact, if the Afghans patrol program meant that for a week you sort of headed south rather than north, um, or, or east rather than north, then you know there'd be no activity. But um, but you build up a picture after a while. You know, whenever we went north, we we would understand the areas where the Taliban clearly felt that they owned it, and how far in we could travel before we came into contact would depend on how devious we were. You know, if we walked up the main road, they would see us coming, and they would always engage us at exactly the same place. Um, if we were slightly more devious and disappeared up some back alleys and deceived them by sending one patrol out in one direction, we might get a little bit further. But, um, but invariably, you sort of you knew where those contacts would happen. Um, and it was mainly just small patrol activities. So we would go out as a team of six, um, and they would be a patrol of ten. And those were mostly just sort of small security patrols. If we were pushing up to the north, then whilst there might not be specific intelligence the Afghan army were working to, um, they would be going out in, in more force. And that was exactly the situation on this, on this day in July. The, uh, the company commander, uh, who was, was a fascinating character in himself, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about him later, had decided that they were going to push into the north um, and, um, and they were going to have a firefight. And I imagine from, these wouldn't have been his words, but he probably just wanted to sort of have a bit of a toe-to-toe with the Taliban just to prove that you know, they, they had the strength to do that. So, um, so the patrol went out, and uh, it was not the majority of the company, but it was about, about 40 of the company, and they went um, sort of two, two patrols up, so uh, 20, uh, 20 Afghan soldiers on, on the left-hand side of the green zone, you know, of, the, of the sort of the, the um, more fertile area, and then 20 on, on the right-hand side, I guess, or east and west. It's more, broadly speaking, we're heading north. Um, and so we split ourselves in half, and we left a couple of guys back in, back in the fob, and we were, um, we were six people with each of those, with each of those patrols. And as we, as we headed up uh, north, the, the Afghan commander was sort of um, very much following the same, the same route that he, that he always followed. And uh, this was starting to become one of those uncomfortable things that he was, he was doing just too often. And I remember talking to the team and saying, look, you know how... We're following the same route again, um, and we were all uncomfortable with it. And 
Um, I said, you know, I'm going to have a chat with him when we get back in because if he does this again, I'm just going to just going to go off somewhere else. We'd, we've spoken about it so many times, um, but you know, you're there to mentor the Afghan commander, and that relationship is, is fundamental to doing your job. So we we continued up the uh, continued up the route and to sort of paint the picture um, as we headed north out to the eastern side. The, the green zone petered out very quickly. It was out towards the desert, so big open views out out to our east, up towards some hills. Uh, to the west, on, on our left hand side, it, it, left hand side, it becomes very, um, very green, dense foliage. Um, you know, in some parts, it was almost jungle-like, where it's really fertile. You know, Musakala was there because the river was so fertile. Um, and on our right hand flank, there was a canal, and the canal, I guess, was about six foot deep, um, and uh, probably sort of, um, probably about four or five foot across um, at its widest. You know, you, you, you wouldn't have crossed it. It, it, it was, it was an obstacle. On this occasion, uh, it was drained because they would open and close the irrigation to different parts of, of the fields. Um, so we're, we're patrolling along, and we start to get the chatter over the ICOM, you know, listening into the Taliban using their, you know, their, their, their radios. Um, and the Afghan commander was saying, hey, look, we're, you know, I can, I can, they're talking about ambushing us, they're talking about us moving forward, they can see us. That, they could always see us, you know, that was just always going to be the case. But he started to say, look, I'm, 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 I'm not happy about this. And, uh, and we were getting similar sort of conversation on a different channel and said, okay, yeah, no, no absolutely. Um, and so we, so we pushed up and he said, okay, look, we're going we're gonna to stop here whilst I get in touch with the other patrol to our west and, um, and discuss what we're going to do. And so we stop, we go firm at the edge of the, um, go edge of the, at the, edge of the canal, um, stop, you know, and as, as with the norm, you sort of do your, do your checks around you. Um, and I'm going forward to speak to, I sort of have a, have a quick stop speak to all of the guys in the, in the team, tell them what's going on, move forward to speak to the Afghan, Afghan commander. Um, and it's at that point the, um, the IED chain detonates. And, you know, Did you know from the radio chatter that there were IEDs? No. no and it, we knew that IEDs were in the area. We'd not yet come across any. Um, but uh, and, you know, we, were, we were about a month into being in Musakala. You know, we, knew it was, we knew it was the main threat. Um, and... It, it, what had happened is we had actually inadvertently stopped in the area that was the killing zone for the ambush. Um, and and when, I say, when I say ambush, you know, I think we have this view in, in, in the British, and I'm sure the US Army as well, of a, you know, a, a well-staged ambush, very deliberate. I mean, it, it wasn't that. Um, I, I suspect, looking back, that the Taliban had perhaps fallen back because we'd come in much greater force. Um, so, you know, the explosion goes off that, you know, there is dust everywhere. My, my initial thought was we'd come under indirect fire attack. Um, I was stood about four metres away from the, from the blast, um, not, knocked to, not knocked off my feet, but kind of knocked, knocked down onto my knees by it. Um, and, you know, the uh, gunfire opens up, um, sort of explosions of RPGs, and I kind of even sure if they were coming in or, or going out, you know, I'm sure. The, uh, on the tour, one thing that I always found was that um, I didn't really have to worry about for returning fire, you know, when you have a, an Afghan company with you, they do all the returning fire that's, that's required. Which, in some cases, when you're worried about, you know, civilian collateral damage is very much a problem. In other cases, when there is an ambush, I mean, that's how doctrinally, that's how how we train. Um, so that, I guess, in this case, is a is a pretty good yeah. thing. That and um, the you know the, the noise of the fire going on just sort of erupts erupts all around us. Um, but it takes me a bit of time to, to work out what's going on because when you're that close to the center of the explosion, I literally I, I'm not. You know, time will. Time is a very, very difficult concept in those circumstances. But you know, I think for the first few seconds, I can't see anything. I don't know what's going on. I'm down on my belly. I'm sort of trying to move forward. 
and um, I, uh, I get face to face quickly with, with the second in command of my patrol and he's an experienced corporal, one of these guys who's kind of been in the army for years and, um, and he goes to check that everyone's okay and I kind of sort of need to move forward and speak to the commander and, and find out what his plan is and what the situation is um, and very quickly I hear the corporal come back and go, yeah, we're, we're missing a man and um, you know, that you're then called in this difficult position that, you know, what are you, what are you trying to do? You know, where, where does your priority lie? And actually I managed to kind of get up to where the Afghan commander is and the firefight's already dying down. I think they, they detonated the IED. This is my, with, with hindsight, you know, they detonated that IED and then they, they got out of there. They, they realised that they, we, we had too many troops in the air and they weren't going to go toe-to-toe. So we're able to switch quite quickly to, well, where's, where's this, this guy that we're missing and where's the casualty? Um, and then we quickly find him in, in the canal. You know, and thankfully the canal's dry, but the, you know, the force of the explosion has flipped, has flipped the guy into the canal. He's, um, he, he was on top of the, the IED when it went off. And, and afterwards, and you could see from the, um, from, from the explosion actually at that time that they had daisy-chained together eight uh, mortar rounds along the path. And um, the rest of us were fine, you know, we were spread out, but, but this particular guy had been right on top of one of them. Were they, were they buried? They were buried, yeah, and they, and they were buried too deep. I mean, the, 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 had they been nearer the surface, um, well, had they been nearer the surface, we may well have, we may well have seen them, but, but as it was, they were quite deep. And I think that, that reduced the blast. Um, and, um, you know, we were able to tell afterwards how deep they'd been buried, and it was, it was enough to have reduced the damage that they did. But... Um, you know, this, this particular guy was, um, was in the canal and to sort of just to paint the picture a little bit more, it's about, yeah, about six foot, about six foot deep. Uh, it's, you know, it's wide, but, um, so it's difficult to get down into. And whilst it's, whilst it's not flowing water and, um, a lot of the time, you know, it would, it would be completely six foot deep water, you know, it, it's maybe about three or four inches of green, brown sludge, you know, it's a canal, it's a sewer, mm. it's all of those things. And, um, and so he is down there and he's, uh, he's lost one leg uh, below the knee, um, one leg above the knee. He's got a lot of blast injuries to, um, to, to his sort of his arms and, and his face. Um, and he's moaning, you know, he's conscious. He's conscious, he's not quite sure what's going on. I've never been quite so happy to have a, a combat medical technician in my patrol as I was at that point. He, you know, he and, and one of the other soldiers dived in and immediately started applying tourniquets to both of his legs. So you had a, you had a medic as a part of the OMLT? Yeah, and, and that was part of the concept of the OMLT was that, um, you know, they had to be able to self-support themselves for a lot longer. So we had a, a medical technician, um, which, uh, you know, and, and each OMLT had that. Um, and that actually, you know, was always a, it was always a training burden for the organisation to provide it in, in terms of providing medical people as well. So the medic dives in and he's, you know, he's tourniqueting the, the guy, um, checking his consciousness, giving him, giving him morphine, um, and then we have the job of trying to get him out of the get him out of the ditch, and, and the Afghan soldiers help us at that point. You know, by the time we've reached this this stage, that the firefight is, is largely is largely finished, um, and the Afghans are providing security whilst we get on with extracting our casualty. Um, and the casualty extraction itself is you know is is very difficult because uh, we know that the Taliban have brought a, a dushka, there's a heavy machine gun in the area which has been brought up with the intention of shooting down a helicopter. So we know that the helicopter's are not going to come in onto our position to extract the casualty. And in fact, we're in the green zone, so you know, there'd be no place for it to land immediately nearby us, um, and it'll have to be extracted 
back, you know, the guard have to be extracted back to the district centre into the um, secure uh, HLS to, to extract it. Um, and I've got very strong memories of that time because, um, you know, you're trying to deal with all these things. I've still, of course, you've still got security in the back of your mind. You, know, you absolutely have to. We're focusing on what we can do with, um, you know, we're, a, we're five or six people in the patrol. So when you've lost one person and moving that person on, on the stretcher, it's, you know, your ability to think about your, your own security organically is, is pretty difficult. You, you know, you're relying on the Afghans to do it. Um, and I remember very clearly um, the voice of my company commander over the net. You know, up until that point, um, I, the, the people I've been speaking to have been the ops room staff, um, organising, you know, acknowledging the contact, um, really doing exactly what you would, you would hope they did, which is largely let you get on with dealing with it. Um, and he comes over the net and he says, look, um, there's one piece of information we're waiting for. I don't want to take your time. You, you've got stuff going on. If you can give me this one piece of information, that is all we need before we can dispatch the, the helicopter to come do the evacuation. Um, and the, you know, the, the calmness of, of the commander, he was, he was so calm um, that it just helped me stop and think. And I think that that is something which has stayed with me throughout my career is that, um, that you know, when the people beneath you are, are in a difficult situation, you don't want to be the guy or lady who gets on the net and adds to that stress. You want to be the person who sucks the stress out of the situation. And it gave me time to stop, get the piece of information, get it to him. Brilliant. And then there was a short kind of, the, the QRF has been called out. There, um, there were a number of um, armoured vehicles. There was an armoured ambulance on its way. Um, we're currently working out where we're going to RV. Um, the helicopter's now inbound. And that just gave that moment of pause, which kind of let me realise that, okay, you know, that feeling that everything's going to be okay, that a leader really has to deliver, uh, which they don't always have to deliver in person, but sometimes they can deliver it over the net. And so we, we gather our guys together, and it's about a kilometre extraction um, with, the, uh, with the four of us and, uh, and this, this one individual on the, um, on the stretcher. We try and get a line into him um, after, after two or three attempts to get fluid into him. You know, his veins are just collapsed. Um, so after two or three attempts, say, look, you know, we, we haven't got the time. We need to get this guy to the ambulance, and then, you know, then he'll get the proper care he needs. So we're, we're carrying him along. There's still the occasional periodic shot, but, you know, um, I'm trying to link up with my platoon sergeant who was mentoring the other patrol. Um, they then um, secure a, an RV um, and send out a link man to link up with me. So we, we're, carrying the, we're carrying the casualty. And there's a, you know, a moment I still can remember now where the link man comes out, of, comes out behind the trees and I sort of, I know that we're linked up and, and that everything is good. I can hear the armored vehicles driving in, in the wadi at this time of year, you know, the, the wadi was dried up, but it's very, really quite wide. So it's, I mean, it's almost like a main road through, up through the area of Musakala. And, um, and we link up with, uh, with the other team. We get the casualty in the back of the, in the, back of the vehicle, you know, the vehicle, the vehicle drives off and it gives us that first opportunity just to, just to stop and actually take, it, take a bit of a stock um, and it's at that point I'm trying to get comms and struggling and realise that probably at some point, you know, the top of my antenna has been either shot off or blown off. Oh. And the reason I'm struggling with comms is because, you know, that's, I have about half the antenna that I had, that I had previously. Um, and, uh, and at the same point, the, uh, the QRF platoon is, is deployed up as well. So there's, um, there's a, an infantry platoon, the British Army um, platoon arrives. And, um, and so we switch from... Having, having had the, the sort of the stop, uh, you know, the, the adrenaline is, is still going, but you have that first moment where everything seems to stop and you can suddenly take stock, um, that we're now just going to try and push out and see what, um, and see what we can find if we head north. Really, and, you know, and, and, and secure the IED site to, to gain some evidence from that as well. 
Um, and so we begin to push a little bit, a little bit further north. Um, and you know, unsurprisingly, we find we find almost nothing. We can find a few firing points where ammunition is, you know, we got spent spent cases. Um, but but with the um, with the arrival of the armoured vehicles, the arrival of the platoon, the Taliban have done quite obviously what I imagine I'd do if I was in their place, which is which is get out of there. So we we gain we gain nothing more from it, you know. Um, and it's at this point, um, you know, time, like I said, time being that flexible, that flexible thing in, in a contact. I really can't, can't remember how long all of this took. But if I look at my diary, the Afghan commander comes to me and says, look, we've been on the ground for seven hours and my guys haven't had anything to eat or anything to drink because, you know, they, um, they didn't take food and drink with them when they went out on patrol. Um, it burdened them down less and they were more mobile than us, but then they had to head back in again. And so we, we end up sort of turning around and, and, and heading, back in, uh, heading back into camp again. Seven hours. I mean, it, when you tell the story, I'm sort of, I think my mind is naturally trying to come up with a timeline to, to tie yeah. this all together. And it feels like it's happening very quickly. Um, but of course, nothing does, especially when you're talking about the distances that you're talking about having to cover on foot for this Kazavak um, in, you know, not, not easy terrain with a small team. So it's not like you can constantly cycle people on and off yeah. the, the litter and, and keep moving quickly. Um, but you, so you've been out by set for seven hours, and yes. this is where you decided to return to so, base. And, and I guess I was trying to break that time down a little bit. I guess the um, the patrol up to where the where the contact happened was probably a couple of hours, maybe an hour, maybe an hour. I'm trying to think back, you know, about ten years, and I think of the distance covered. Um, you know, the contact itself and the casualty evacuation. You know, getting getting a guy. You know, he, you know, the guy's dead weight, lifting him up a six foot, a steep six foot bank. It was almost, you know, it was almost like a um, a sheer wall, so you've got four or five people down in the ground and the Afghan army are helping us, um, lifting him up bodily onto the path and getting him in and you know, the time it takes to, um, to try and get the line in and you're right, that, that kilometre, there are a lot of stops along the way as you sort of, you know, the best you can hope to do is change which side you're carrying the, the stretcher on rather than cycle people through because you know, there are enough of you just to lift the four corners. Um, and then from there, the, the clearance afterwards. I mean, you know, the clearance went on for, for a couple of hours because you, you're conscious that the, the Taliban are quite possibly out there, so you're moving much more cautiously. Um, you're searching compounds, you're searching buildings. And you joined with this platoon that had showed up to do that? That's, well, we, I mean, we went back with the Afghan company, but when um, that job, when you're doing the mentoring and advising role, you want to be the link man between the, you know, your friendly forces and the the indigenous forces so i spent a lot of time kind of toing and froing back back between them because for all the all the radio comms which i was clearly struggling with when i had an antenna but that that face-to-face -face understanding is you know is, is really quite important um I, I remember at one point getting the afghan commander together with the with the uk platoon commander um you know an interesting dynamic because the uk platoon commander who i think had worked a bit less frequently with the afghan army was kind of like right well this is what we're going to do mm -hmm. And the Afghan company commander is saying, well, I'm a <laughs> company commander, so I'm telling you what we're going to do. Um, and that, that, human, that human dynamic and understanding, you know, who's in charge, I think there is, that was what I remember as being the most interesting uh, element of, of the tour. Not, not, just of that, not just of that day um, and, you know, and the circumstances of that day, but of the um, balancing the relationships you have to build when you are in a you know, trained, assist, advise, mentoring, however you want to, however you want to describe that, that spectrum that we're getting, you know, that we're increasingly involved in, um, is as a commander, how you, how you balance that risk. You know, when, when I've been on other operational tours, you, you understand that the risk to the mission comes from, from the enemy. And so you'll do everything you can to, 
uh, to analyse those risks, understand them, mitigate the impact, mitigate the, the likelihood of them happening. You know, that can be, that's, that's a, a useful formal process to go through to balance it. But when you're also mentoring and advising an indigenous army, uh, there's a third factor, because you can, you can fail in your mission without ever coming near the, the enemy. You know, if you, if you play that relationship wrong, you can go on 100 patrols, never come across the enemy, but still destroy your relationship, and you can still um, reduce, not just in the short term, but in the long term, your, your ability to work with that, you know, partner with them, um, develop them. You know, you can spend a lot of time training them, but the relationship is critical. And on those occasions when later on we would support an Afghan operation, you know, how, um, how I built that relationship up was, was important. Very early on, he kind of said to me, oh, so, you know, Will, tell me, uh, have you been to Afghanistan before? And I said, no, I haven't. I've, I've been to Iraq. I said, oh, okay, uh, have, you, have you fought the Taliban yet? I said, no, no, you know, I've been in theatre for about a month. He says, oh, you know, I started fighting the Taliban when I was 15, and, you know, I killed my first Taliban when I was 16. And, and I thought, you know, I've, there's some credibility issues here that, <laughs> that I need to start dealing with, you know. Um, and he was, and, he, and, and interestingly, this, you know, this Afghan commander, I, I still look at him as, you know, he was an inspirational guy. The Afghans adored him. He was sort of the guy who would deliver victory for them. And you hear lots of people say a lot of negative things about, about the Afghan army. You know, no one, no one is perfect. And sometimes we expect perfection of our allies that we don't expect of ourselves. But this guy kind of, kind of really got it. And um, I always had to remain very conscious of all those occasions where um, he wanted to do something that I would not do mm-hmm. in, in normal circumstances. If I was commanding my own company, I would not do those things. But if I told him I was not going to do them or told him that they were absolutely wrong, that would become a problem. And so you have to tread this line of saying, look, this, what, you, what you're doing is a bad idea and explaining why and you know, gaining his confidence and proving you're willing to take the risks he's taking while simultaneously explaining to your, um, your soldiers that there's a reason we're taking these risks, but nevertheless minimising and mitigating those risks at the same time. And, um, and that, was, that was a daily struggle. You know, the idea that you would sometimes find out five minutes before you turn up for patrol where you were going to go, which meant it was impossible for you to line up any assets to support it. Um, or sometimes you would, you would manage to convince them to give you the plan the day before and you'd line up the assets and then you'd arrive and they'd say, I've changed my mind, we're, we're going in the other direction. And so then you have to go back and balance the relationship with your high headquarters and say, look, thank you for everything you've delivered, but we no longer need it because it's not really justified for what we're doing and you may as well try and give it to another, to another, um, to another unit. And, um, and that's doing the right thing because you don't want to hog those resources, but it, it creates some tension with the relationships the other way. It seems like um, you know, you've painted a picture where as, as a trainer, you are the link between this large host nation force and um, allied force that are ostensibly working toward the same ends, um, have the same objectives in mind, but there isn't a lot of, um, there, isn't, there aren't a lot of tangible links there. Um, but that relationship is also sort of fraught because you're a trainer, you're a mentor, you're a teacher. These are all words that um, imply a certain power dynamic in the relationship. The teacher is superior to the student. Um, that's sort of the implication, I think. Mm. And yet, um, on the ground, he has, a, he has to maintain a certain authority. Um, you know, culturally it's important, but it's also important, you know, his men have to, his soldiers need to know that he's the one making decisions, that he's the one to follow because he's less effective as a commander if he's not able to. So it strikes me as a very difficult balance to strike these two, um, not only contrasting, but sometimes conflicting um, relationships. Yeah, um, 
and it would be it would be wrong of me to suggest that that was the only link that was important. You know, my platoon sergeant had a link with their sure. their company sergeant major, first sergeant. I can't remember exactly what terminology they used. My you know my corporals had relationships with their sergeants. They would instruct them. So so at every level, we had to make sure that relationship worked. It would do me no favors to undermine the commander in front of his men. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you wouldn't do that to your friend. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that with your ally. Um, and if I did that, then that would also ruin the rest of the relationship. So we, we always walked that, that balancing line. Um, you know, better that they should do it well, and you know, we should do it exceptionally well. And um, that, you know, later on, I, um, I, I did a master's degree in research into, you know, building trust. And I came to this conclusion that kind of when two different culturally different teams are looking to develop trust, there's an element of intent, you know, the fact that we are proving to them that we intend to do something towards the same mission. And I think that was there. I think they knew, you know, we, we were both doing the same thing, fighting the Taliban. There's an element of integrity. There's an element of, you know, you say you're here to help. Do, do you really mean it? When you say you're going to deliver something, do you deliver? Um, there's competence. There's, you know, the, your, or your capability to actually do the job. But, but there's a proven track record. And so when you first arrive, people are sort of like, you know, the, the Afghans would be like, yeah, okay, they've, they've, got, they've got all the capability and capacity. We know that. We know they're here for... You know, they're here for the same reason as us to fight the Taliban, but is this, is this young captain I've just met who's junior to me and has fought the Taliban less, is, uh, does he really mean it when he says he's going to be there? And then there's a the track record that takes time to, that takes time to deliver. Um, and in those early days, that track record is, is really important. And so, um, especially when you're doing a mentoring job, when you're often really far removed from your chain of command, you're making those decisions yourself, you have to think really long and hard about where you're going to take those risks. You know, if, if we take no risks, we achieve nothing. We, we all know that. Um, but it forces you to assess risks in a way that you're less comfortable with. You probably were much less comfortable with when you're back in the UK or in the US thinking about what, what risks you would and wouldn't take. You find the circumstances are, are quite different. So how do you, um, when you make that decision to assume a greater deal of risk than you would under normal circumstances um, because the situation calls for it, um, is it a difficult, task then to ask your soldiers to do the same thing yeah yeah it is and uh i was um i was fortunate you know whilst i came late into the organization that they were a they're a very professional bunch and i think we we established a good relationship but but also that they understood they understood their role was different to the the role that a lot of infantry soldiers would would see i, I dare say they would have loved to have been in a in an all UK fighting company taking the fight to the enemy, but they understood their role was different. And therefore they understood that that required them to take other risks. And I think that mindset was, was important. There wasn't a mindset that was instilled by me. You know, I was, I was late to the game, but, um, but they understood that. But, it, but how you take those risks and the, the level you're willing to take them at um, will be quite personal. You know, you, you fall back in your training, so you have to understand which bits of your training taught you this, but you also have to understand that sometimes the training didn't, didn't quite prepare you in the right way for it. Um, and uh, so there was an element of explaining to people why, why we were willing to take this risk. And often it was, it was after the fact. You'd say, look, I think we were all uncomfortable doing that, but I had to balance up what the risk was, and, and this is why I did it. How much, uh, how much more time were you in country after July 14th? So um, I, uh, I came back off the tour to get married. Um, that was the backstop to the, uh, to the operation. Um, and uh, so I would have uh, left in September time. So you had about three months August. left. Yeah. Um, when you got back that night on July 14th, were you angry? 
Uh, were you angry that, you know, this risk that I'm assuming in order to get this mission done and to not undercut this commander, that meant that he, he made this decision to go down this easy way that they always go. Did you, did you feel anger? I, um, I feel strongly and I, and I still feel strongly that when, you, you know, when you're in charge, when you're a leader, um, you, you know, you're the one who takes the responsibility. Because there are many things I could have done. You know, I could have decided that my relationship with him was not worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, as we had discussed previously, and you know, we were kind of reaching that point that you know, the decision was mine. If I was angry with anybody, it was, I was angry with myself. But you, know, you come back to the point that you, you have to make these, these risk-based decisions. Um, and the Afghan commander came to see me, and he asked how our soldier was, and um, you know, he, understood, he understood the exact circumstance I was in, you know, in many ways. Um, of all the Afghans that I worked with, he was the one who I was, I was very similar to. We were culturally very different in a lot of ways, but as a, someone who'd been a professional soldier since the age of, sort of 16, or at least a soldier from the age of 16, he, you know, he and I thought a lot, of, a lot about the same sort of things and, and thought about them the same way. And um, you know, he asked after him and gave his apologies, and you know, we talked through what had happened, and I talked through what happened with him, and I also talked through with the, with the guys as well. You know, we did a real sort of post-mortem. I think we did that post-mortem not... Um, not just to understand risks and to understand um, exactly what, had, um, what we would do differently in future or what could have done differently, but to understand what had actually happened. Because you know, with everybody there is a different perspective. I, I have no doubt you could get all of us in the room now and we could tell you the same story and it would, and it would be a different story. You know? that's, to do with, that's to do with a memory 10 years ago, but a memory of six hours before, when everyone sees it from a different perspective, is very interesting. And that was a useful, um, that was a useful tool to understand what had happened without trying to descend into some sort of um, uh, some sort of post-event session of being sorry for ourselves. You know that was that was important. And and no matter what my own thoughts were, being someone who can project confidence into a group is really important. And and I guess maybe you would ask those people whether or not I achieved it. But um, but after that event. Um, you need to be, as a leader, the person who's projecting that confidence onto the team. No matter how confident you feel yourself, um, there is a time and a place as a leader to admit your fallibility and to you know, make sure that you bring others into the process of leading. Um, but at that, at that point when times are difficult, there still is that requirement um, to be that leader, who is, be that person who's projecting that confidence, that's saying, and, you know, and tomorrow we're going to go out and do the same thing. You are uh, now at the Center for Army Leadership, um, a British Army organization that you were one of the founders of. Um, so I imagine you can look at it, this as a case study, one that you have personal experience with and see a lot of lessons in leadership. But I think that's the one that sticks out the most is um, I think a leader's role in um, projecting certain characteristics that you want to see in your subordinates. And it's not just projecting confidence to your team, but I think it sounds like your company commander did the same thing when he projected yeah. a level of calmness that helped you kind of take stop and take stock and um, you know find the level of calmness that you probably needed to continue going as well. Uh, so that's that's a really fascinating lesson I think that can be called from this particular experience. Yeah, and um, you know I had a, a sports psychologist speak speak recently here at the center, and I found his his insight you know and. Um, we can talk about football, soccer, John. You know. <laughs> um, and he sort of said, you know, when you're the when you're the player who's on the pitch who's about to take that penalty, you need to have a supreme confidence in yourself. You know, misplaced. You need to be so confident because that confidence allows you to deliver in the field at that moment, um, and that that is important. 
but when you're off the pitch and when you're planning how the team are going to train and um, or maybe you're the coach that that confidence is a liability because actually you you need to have skepticism you need to be really skeptical about everything you come across and think critically and so um, there is a role there in understanding how you balance the idea of uh, skepticism when skepticism is needed or um, or confidence when supreme confidence is needed um, and in those crisis moments when people do look at you 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 do want to project that confidence even if you don't have that confidence yourself um, there is a skill there in in switching it on and off and knowing when the right time is to, to deliver it well we'll i think we're going to leave it there for now um thanks very much for for, for sharing your story and and um i think it was a it was a pleasure to be able to unpack some of the lessons on leadership and and to really hear this pretty incredible first-hand experience brilliant john thanks very much thank you Hey, before you go, just a quick reminder that if you're not already doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.